clubhouse. He began living in the wonder and neglecting what's real. I weaved for him a fiction, no different than the one Libby Hatch has created for herself. Now you're simply looking for ways to punish yourself. Truth is, Laszlo, you did help him. You helped him to look ahead. And I might argue that it is the absence of wonder that molds a child into a person like Libby Hatch. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. And I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode 206 of The Alienist season, Angel of Darkness. The episode was called Memento Mori. And teleplay for this episode was by Allison Feltz, and it was directed by David Caffrey. I hope her name is Feltz. We and I had a discussion about whether it's Feltz or Feltus or Feltis, but I think Feltz feels right. I think right. Feltz is the way to go. Felt feels right. So, yes. so let's I keep going. I apologize if it's not, but <laughs> I did have the best of intentions. We're doing the best we can. What did you think of Memento Mori? So, this is now hour two of this third week of The Alienist. Oh, I, I feel like Laszlo is just getting crushed by the boot of life this season and this episode yeah. in particular. There's just been misery and no breaks for him whatsoever. Polly turned out to be kind of what we predicted he yeah. was going to be. Kind of kind of a Chekhov's gun. They showed him in the first act so he had to try and kill himself in the third act kind of thing. Yeah, I know. Um, it feels like yeah. it feels wrong saying yay us for getting that right, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that look was just so pointed that he gives him when he when he's unimpressed with the rope trick in that last episode, like we talked about. I think Chrysler is kind of dead on, you know, when he's when he talks about it, it, to to the police, he's you know this is just an accident, it was just an accident, you know, just a kid trying to do magic kind of thing. But to to John and, and Karen, he confides that it was a cry for help. It was preventable. It was his failure. Yeah, it was fa- it was his failure to to reciprocate. The feeling that Polly had for him back was very noticeable going in for the hug and then not getting a hug back, not getting the response to the magic trick that Polly clearly had built up in his mind he was going to get. Uh, you know, just a credit to the show, to the writing, to, to the to the kid who did the acting for that. They telegraphed all of that really well. This didn't feel cheap or manipulative. No. It was devastating and it's a horrible, horrible image. Hanging in general, is a horrible image to see. There was a hanging scene in this past season of Westworld, and it was kind of done off screen where you just kind of saw the feet. It was still disturbing. So watching a child hang by a rope, it's a very, very disturbing image. Yeah, I agree. This had real emotional impact because they had taken the time to plant a couple of seeds in the previous episodes. So it wasn't out of left field and how and why Chrysler would feel responsible. And then, like, on the flip side, I'm feeling it for Sarah because she's getting all kinds of recognition. And, you know, despite the attempts that are out there to destroy her, her credibility, uh, she's getting some major recognition. So I'm feeling pretty good for where Sarah's at right now. Did Burns and Hearst plan to discredit her and take her down a notch work? No, I think it completely backfired on them. I, I, I agree. I don't know how you could take that as any other thing. It not only put her on the radar of Vanderbilt, but we knew from it was 
Bitsy, I think, who comes in and says, you know, we've got like a the fuck phone ton- is like running. Yeah, we got a fuck ton hunting. of work because of the press, you know. Yeah. So very, very much the opposite. You know, the the novelty of this lady, this fancy lady detective, has seemed to have spurred the the imaginations of New York's you know wealthy clientele, which is not really a surprise because remember she already had the business, the trivial matters of the wealthy females of high society. So it's not a far reach for her face to be on the front page for one of these wealthy women to see it or or to remark maybe a husband is reading it at the breakfast table you know look at this fancy lady and then the wife is like well she's quite good you know she helped me recover the silverware she showed up from from that you know pilfering bitch that you know we had uh you know let go last week i think it would be a pilfering hussy i don't think they would say the word bitch you know? well maybe yes i'm sorry <laughs> using, using my modern vernacular yes <laughs> I do have to confess that some of the research that I did for this episode took me down some dark paths. <laughs> when they were talking about the lactophilia, oh hell yeah. I learned some shit. I learned wow, I, and it was like stuff that I just I couldn't look away. I'm not in a good place. <laughs> I, I looked it up too. It seems like I was less damaged uh, than you were by it. But I yeah, I'm you know interesting to have a word for the thing that we saw last week and 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 got an, a repeat show of. Uh, this week, Let, let's start with Libby. What, what's your take? A couple of times this episode, and I feel like maybe she had even mentioned it earlier, but I feel like it was prominently displayed in this episode. She, she's talking to Gugu and she keeps referring to, and, and, and just people in general. I mean, the episode starts with her washing the blood off and she screams about how her baby was taken from her, how her baby was stolen from her. Are you taking that in a literal sense or in a metaphorical sense? At this point, I'm believing that it's a literal sense. That she physically had a baby. This is how she, you don't just lactate from not having a baby. Like you produce milk once there is a baby that is born. There's there's hormones that get stimulated and that's how you produce milk. And it just has to be kept, the supply just has to be kept up. Like you could nurse for your entire childbearing years if you so needed to. But I'm thinking now that this was, she really had a baby and she really had this baby taken away from her. And it was a different experience than what was happening to these women in the maternal research wing at the lying in hospital where they never had an opportunity to even hold their baby, get to know their baby. She had a baby that grew, that got to a certain point, And that's where this flip with her, with the babies is happening when they get to be too big. She starts to not want them anymore and goes through this elaborate process with the memento mori. So I'm, I'm thinking a hundred percent there was a baby. I absolutely think she had a baby. I think she birthed the baby. I think she raised the baby for a little bit. I, I think the baby died. I think the injustice of the baby dying is what is setting her off because neither her nor Gugu, and Gugu is the kind of person who would slash a thousand throats and enjoy it, but uh, to be certain, but slash a thousand throats looking for a stolen child, especially presuming he was the father, the way they talk. I don't think it's a real stolen baby. I think I think that would be more of a story. I think it's a and and if it's the profile that you know Team Alienist has set out that it's uh, a grief from a from a death and and it really ties into the whole memento mori concept that we've set out the death of a child prompting this break with reality causing the stealing of the babies and it and it also fits in my brain with why she gets tired of the babies or or maybe turns on the babies uh, stops diluting the poison she's feeding the babies once they become a certain size once they outgrow the baby she remembers and and now it's now noticeable her noticeable to her that it's not her baby 
I think that all says to me it was a baby that died very young, which was not uncommon at this time. You know, uh, infant mortality, you know, because of disease and whatnot was was rampant. I'm getting a different vibe altogether. I'm getting that she might have been like an unfit mother and the baby might have been taken away from her because of things that happened in this episode that we're told about. The fact that her and her mother saw her father hanging himself. I mean, she's a young woman. I mean, she's under 25. I'm thinking that she might have been like an unfit mother and somehow this baby was taken away from her. I'm not getting that the baby died. Because then why would she want to recreate it? Well, because in her mind, I think that's why she uses the word stolen, as in she was robbed of the experience of being a mother. It was taken from her. Yeah, I'm getting a more of a literal sense. I don't know. There's there's things in my heart that I'm just like, I don't know. This, I, I feel like she had a baby and the baby was taken from her. I don't feel like she watched her baby die. Either way, traumatic. Does it make her more sympathetic to you? I think this is an area where we have disagreed. I think I've had a lot more sympathy for her, uh, <laughs> despite her gruesome crimes, than you have had. Does the idea of she really did have a baby and it was taken from her, no matter how it was taken from her, make her more sympathetic character to you? As we are learning more about her, I'm less hard on her because she is... As Sarah describes her, she's vulnerable, she's intelligent, she's tentative. There are things that are driving that. So she's not the end-all, be-all evil character that she initially was built up to be. You know, there was that wonderful turn in her character arc. But I'm, I'm less harsh on her now because there's irreparable harm that is done to parents when there is a child involved and the child, for whatever reason does not live, does not get to stay with the parents for whatever reason. So I'm softening my position on her in terms of her evilness. I'm thinking her more just of a damaged, sick, mentally sick individual. I'm feeling more sympathy towards her. It's just making me wonder like if her baby was stolen from her, if it is a metaphor, if it's not a metaphorical thing, if it's a literal thing, my head is swimming like as to who would steal her baby and sort of live to tell the tale if there's a goo goo knocks involved. Uh, I apologize for what I'm about to say because it is horrible and it is corny. You know who is more hard on her? Who is super hard for her? Goo Goo Knox is super hard for oh, Libby. This God, guy. You had to go there. I did. I did. He cannot get enough of this crazy redhead and her breast milk and and her proper lady dress. He is thirsty for his for some please don't use that word in terms of this because i um, I mean he is he is thirsty metaphorically and and literally literally. (laughs) um the sound effects of that was just it was making me wretch (laughs) he is a really interesting character because he really is because he is clearly a psychopathic killer right i mean the dusters they're all kind of cross-eyed love the taste of blood you know or love the feel of blood upon their hands him and all of his boys seem to be real real killers in like the most arranged way possible but he is super loyal to her even when he takes the smack from her yeah he gets pissed off but he doesn't rail against her every other mobster in every other mobster movie or tv show would have could you imagine any anyone smacking a Corleone in the Godfather movies and not getting, you know, something back ten times worse when, you know, he makes the, the comment you oh, know, about, he makes, the baby, uh, yeah. about the baby, you know, he, he, which clearly was intended to be a playful comment. 
crazy. Oh, and that's as it exactly was. how I took it. And yeah, you just, know, he's like, "Hey, I don't want to compete with that baby for your breast milk," and she smacks him, kind of thing. Bitch slaps him, like yeah, and and but he doesn't retaliate. Like he's really into Libby. He again brings up, but in a more earnest way, about getting them a new baby, a better baby. He says, "You know, the one you were eyeing." The one you were eyeing, holy yeah. shit! This is like a this is like a side business for these two. Yeah, it's like babies. a little ring that's going on. The way he takes her, you know, kind of grabs her when she's burning her arm later on. He didn't have to do that. He he was seemed generally upset that she was hurting herself, and then he got down to the you know the booby sucking and, and was totally into it. I, I I actually have it in my notes. I I have. I said Google catches her burning her arm uh, with the iron. But first, breast milk sucking. You know, like... Well, she's just sore. Got... I mean, you've got yeah. to have, you know, that... She, yeah, she needs the relief for sure. And then... Uh, in the, that in is the... pain like no one has ever experienced. And in the, the post-coital milk, you know, glow, he sees her later when she comes out all dressed up because she's getting ready to go snatch. And, you know, and he's... And he snatch just... a baby. <laughs> yeah. <I> think, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Snatch the, ver- the verb... Snatch the verb tense. You know, she, uh, he, he's all like, yeah, you look like, you know, you look beautiful. You look like a proper high society lady. He's really, he is completely. And I she's mean, standing there with the fucking crazy eyes as she's standing there all dressed up, ready to, you know, snatch. Gugu Knox has got it bad, bad, bad for Libby. And they are a deranged little family, those two. You know, I, I called them, they had like a real natural born killers vibe. I still stand by that, but they also have like kind of a Bonnie and Clyde vibe about them also yeah again makes them kind of complex characters he's just not a crazy killing psychopath you know maybe like fat jack and ding dong have been who are you know much more one-dimensional we only know them as as hooligans and and roughnecks you know google docs has got some depth to him when you see him with his woman uh you know in the same way that libby is uh you know a more complex than you would imagine for all the reasons that Sarah will then go on later in the episode to talk about, you know, she's not just, she's just not a baby snatching, baby murdering, matron murdering, uh, bloodlust filled killer. These, she's got these layers to her. I got one more thing about Gugu and Libby with this whole breast milk thing. She's ingesting different substances to pass through the breast milk for the baby. So he's also getting whatever it is that she's ingesting. So there might be some sort of, like addiction thing going on. I'm not sure, like a physical addiction, not just a mental addiction to the breast milk. Well, yeah, but remember also, I mean, most times she's diluting it, right? Because she's not, I mean, she's not doing doses high enough to kill the babies. So presumably it's having even less of an effect on a grown adult male. But there, uh, there may be some kind of addiction thing there. Besides the ANR, the adult nursing relationship. I mean, we, I mean, we we'll we'll get into that when we get into Laszlo and Karen yeah. about you know is it a fetish, is it a deviation, or is it you know for pleasure? Let's address one concern just in show logic because I think I know it's something that you and I both talk about. Uh, what's your theory on how Libby is actually getting to scout all of these places? I mean, she not only. Uh, you know, have been eyeing, to use Google's word, the Vanderbilt baby, which she acts on in this episode, but had been in the house, had had taken a shit ton of Vanderbilt crested, uh, family crested uh, items, which I love the Vanderbilts because they put their their family seal on all of their shit, on which is everything. fantastic. You know, oh, we got a brush. Well, we got to put that Vanderbilt seal on it. Let people know it's a Vanderbilt brush. It's not like they're selling it in a store. It's just, you know, for their one of their houses. That it's they just have. a reminder that they're 
fucking rich. Yeah. So, I mean, and we know that she had been in a Lenar's house at least once before, right? Because she, we learned this episode, she had a, a trophy from that scouting mission, right? She had a Lenaris brush, her and Sarah and John put together that she had, you know, been in their house. She's just not willy nilly snatching kids. She's doing a lot of reconnaissance. How do you think that works though with her keeping down the job at Lyon? <laughs> and and managing to f- uh, a baby that she snatched and 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 her gugu. I mean, she's feeding a baby a gugu. Maybe that's why his name is Gugu. <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> uh, that's disturbing. Next episode, he is in like a baby New Year diaper with like a little bonnet on. That might take me over the edge. Well, of- like when we talk about the fetish conversation, like that that plays in there. But I'm not sure where she's found the Vanderbilt baby because we know from the investigation that she found the Lenar's baby through the lying in hospital. That she she wasn't caring for the baby while the baby was admitted. But she was definitely around, so she had an opportunity to develop across the room link with this baby, and that's when she became aware of this baby and followed them, and, and you know got the items out of the Lenar's house before she snatched the baby. I'm just not sure where she came to know the Vanderbilt baby, see it because it's definitely way uptown. The Vanderbilts live on like 57th and 5th. She's down on Hudson Street. There, it's literally worlds away in 1897. I'm thinking that she has some help from the dusters only because they're available. And it just seems if you have a crime syndicate there that it's, you might, you might as well use them for all of their, their talents and, and wares. That makes sense to me, but it, but I feel like she's the one actually going in and doing the things though, because I don't know any of the dusters are sophisticated enough or delicate enough to think to take a music box or a brush. No, they're definitely very feminine items. And selected with care as relates to the baby. There seems to be something very personal about those items as Libby relates to the babies. It's not to say that they're not helping Scout or or get her into these houses or or, or providing her some assistance. Yeah, I'm definitely you know? not seeing Ding Dong reading the, the Sunday Times, the, the society section to see like who the Vanderbilts were out with last night. I don't even think Ding Dong can read. But I, it is disconcerting from a point of logic that her baby kidnappings are becoming much more elaborate and further up the publicity chain. It feels like in some weird way that she wants to get caught. Like every good serial killer wants to get caught eventually because then how else is anybody going to know their story? I don't know that I agree with that. I don't think she's doing this for the publicity. I think she's doing this to fill a void in her life that she doesn't otherwise know how to do. It makes sense to me that she may be aware of the Vanderbilts and their babies because while she herself is not of a high society nature, we know through the lying in hospital that high society people come through there. You know, there are a fuck ton of Vanderbilts. It's not implausible that a Vanderbilt mistress has come through the lying in hospital. They're one of the big 400 families. Whatever it is that attracts her to one baby and maybe not another baby. When a baby is born in a Vanderbilt family in the you know, 1890s, it gets a lot of press. There are probably pictures. She is sophisticated enough to be shopping at Siegel Cooper and buying these dolls going back at least a year. So she's not a, she's not a rube. She's not like a hayseed off the farm. She, she knows how to uh, mingle among the higher sex of society when she puts on her, her fancy lady gowns. No one batted an eye at her when she was in the park with all of the other high society babies and their babysitters, you know, in the park. Well, so. let's put it this way. The nap baby only made the papers when it was found in Siegel Cooper dead. Nobody was reporting this baby missing in the papers. The NYPD wasn't being alerted. They weren't shutting down Manhattan. 
They weren't hiring Pinkerton. Sure. I mean, we don't know who Martha Knapp's father is or who the father of the baby is, but Martha Knapp, by all accounts, was a no one. She was in the, the non-maternal re- research section. So she was in the poor girls forgotten, the, the diatribe that Marco launched into about these girls and their woe-begotten ways. So she's a nobody. She's probably here, no parents, no family. She's an immigrant because she has, definitely has an Irish accent. She's part of this underbelly of society that nobody would give two shits, whether she lived or died or her woe-begotten child. I mean, that lends credence to my theory, though, that it, she's not basing it on who the parent is. She's basing her baby cap- kidnapping based on the baby itself. You know, whatever, something she sees in the baby, you know, catches her imagination as as one that fits the mold that she thinks will fill, finally fill that void in her heart and has that delusion until she doesn't, until something about the baby changes, either it bites her or it grows too big. Fast forwarding to Libby, because there's a lot more Libby to talk about in this episode, but it's, I think, best talked about through Sarah later on. But there's that final scene where uh, her and Gugu have made it to uh, to Brooklyn and they're sleeping up on the rooftop. You know, okay, there's a lot of black tar tops on in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn Heights, uh, you know, the area where they were at the end of that episode. Those are like old buildings. Those roofs are extremely uncomfortable and get very hot with the sticky tar and stuff. I don't know that I'd want to be sleeping on one of those rooftops in, in the middle of summer. But to each their own. Uh, how scared were you for that she was going to drop the baby or something horrible was going to happen at the very end of the episode? When she My goes actual sh- notes say, oh, holy fuck, as she steps to the edge. <laughs> yeah, especially that Google even, like, talks to her yeah, about it. Like, you she, know, I'm don't not- be like that the woman who, you know, stepped right off the edge of the building. Oh, shit, and then she tells back. him, I'm not sleepwalking, fool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying, but like, and Google doesn't retaliate. And, you know, so Google Google is Listen, in for the long haul. there is power in that milk. I mean, so, but I, I think it was interesting, one, because obviously it was a great tension moment, uh, you know, her dangling the baby kind of right at the edge of the building, but it really tied it back to the trauma of her father, which I think is going to prove to be another part of her relationship with Sarah. You know, last episode, I, you know, I, I kind of hit on this theory of she's emulating Sarah, but I, I think there there is this bond between them, especially through their fathers and their their deaths. Obviously, the death of her father is hanging on her mind here at the in this last scene right she's talking good choice of words they're hanging (laughs) she's uh i mean she's being super existential about you know you being here one moment and then you're gone in the next and the blink of an eye yeah yeah the death of her father is clearly you know a trauma in her life that is uh hanging over her i mean i don't know how that plays into whatever happened to her baby they all seem to be connected the psychology inside her brain all seems to be connected between her father, the death of her father, the baby, and the stolen, quote-unquote, stolen nature of her baby. Absolutely. I just, I definitely feel that whatever she witnessed with her father, you know, we learned that she witnesses the the hanging of her father. That was the catalyst for all of her issues. I don't think she had issues prior to that. That's my bold statement for today. Two hours left, we're going to find out. So, Laszlo had a tough fucking episode, but at the same time, also had some real bright spots. But let's start with the bad stuff first. So... He takes Polly to see Houdini, who is doing his, you know, suspended straitjacket act down on the docks. Obviously, Polly is taken by it. We see there's a flyer coming up the June 8th of Houdini show at the Spencer's Palace uh, Music Hall coming up. And clearly, Polly wants to probably go to that. Were you surprised, based on what we had seen kind of set 
last week and we talked about the rope trick, which we both said was a bad idea to be practicing. And the, the look that he gives Kreiser when he leaves, the underwhelmed response he seems to, to feel he got. Were you surprised at what happened here with him hanging himself in Kreiser's office? I wasn't. I, I was hoping that it wouldn't go that way. But there's no way you have a, a teenager, a young teenager playing with a rope around his neck that it's not going to go badly. And he just watched this man dangling 100 feet in the air, get himself out of handcuffs in a straitjacket. And he's looking at the book of tricks. I was like, this is just going to go so, so badly. I didn't actually think it was going to be over the desk. I was thinking, I don't know, I was thinking my mind went to like Robin Williams and Kate Spade, like with the, the rope around the neck from like a, a lower vantage point. Like they didn't hang themselves from an elevated point. That's, I just wasn't thinking of that big spectacle, but yeah, it was just horrific. Do you think it's an accident or do you think it was a cry for help? I think it was ultimately a cry for help because he, I don't think he thought it was going to go that way. I thought he was going to try to get out of the situation that he got himself into the hanging, that he was going to try to get out of the way that Houdini did. I think it was a cry for attention, but I don't believe it was a suicidal ideation. I don't. I think he wanted Laszlo's attention, but he was just getting it in a very negative way. I think it was done very specifically at Chrysler. I yes. don't think it was just him working on magic. I think it was done because that's the only reason to do it in Laszlo's office. To do it in Laszlo's office, an office that he probably knows he is not allowed to be in when Laszlo is not there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that is a rule of the Chrysler Institute. You do not go in Master Chrysler's office without him being there. But he did. He didn't. He not only invaded Laszlo's private space, which again he must know is not okay, but he must have stepped up onto his desk. He must have tossed the rope. You know, he he had to do a lot of things that he knew were not okay to do to get himself in that position. All of that screams to me that he was doing it specifically to send Laszlo a message? Did he really appreciate the consequences? I've, for a myriad of reasons, have looked at suicide a lot lately. Not that I've looked at suicide, but... Thank you for clarifying that, because I'm like, wait, what? I've, I've, I'm working on like separate projects that have nothing to do with this podcast. I've been researching suicide and, and tendencies, and it's shocking the lack of understanding of the permanent consequences that suicide is that kids and teenagers have with when it comes to suicide. That that was a very mangled way of saying that. That that kids who attempt suicide and and or are successful or not successful with it don't appreciate the finality of it. That it is a it is so much more often a cry for help that ends in something permanent and horrible without them really appreciating the finality of it. And and I think that's what we got here. Thank God Laszlo made it in time. I loved him getting out of the carriage and his eyes scanning. As detached and as remote as he is from the kids, as, as, as emotional distance as he keeps from the kids, he is clearly invested in them because he realizes right away Polly is not there and you can see the alarm in his eyes right away. What made him feel alarmed? Who knows what his actual feeling is towards this young boy uh, that he will never let surface. But I love the fact that you could see mild alarms go off in his head as soon as he was not able to spy him in a courtyard with all the other children. And it just, it, the lump in the throat, you know, just kind of grew from there as the tension built, built to him going into his office. Yeah, when he broke into a run in the courtyard, heading towards like the, the matron who was watching over them, that's when I was just like, oh, this is not going to go well. Yeah, and the, and and in the kind of desperation as he sees his in his office first before he makes before he's able to bust into his office, and just just the 
the the helplessness of him kind of holding the legs. Yeah. You know, uh, just it was it was just crushing to see. And and thank God he made it there in time, and and Polly survived. Yeah, I don't think Polly really appreciated what could happen when he stepped up to do all that. He knew it would be bad. He knew it would be. Uh, he knew he would be teaching, quote unquote, teaching. You know, Chrysler a lesson. But I don't think he probably appreciated the finality of what could have happened. Agreed. How bad can his luck be that, of course, it's Marco who is the oh, doctor sent Lord. to assess whether or not he is fit to continue to run the Chrysler Institute. And, by the way, is suspended. I mean, like, a, a pending investigation is suspended, cannot practice as an alienist, cannot see the children, cannot practice, you know, psychology in any kind of way, cannot practice medicine in any kind of way. That's some quick-acting bureaucracy. In, in a time when bureaucracy, I mean, where the definition of red tape, you know, comes out of this generation, what was your reaction when you saw him as the doctor? That oh, was when be? I saw him in his office, I was like, first of all, I was like, yes, like, who else could it be? Well done, Caleb Carr and Alienist team for, for bringing that, you know, drama back in. But as far as Marco being there and delivering his swift judgment, Lazlo called him on it right away. He knew that he's like, yeah, you're going to give me a fair and impartial decision. And Marco just lands it down, saying that he's suspended. And that I thought it was very clever that Marco said, you're also banned from advising in any capacity his duties as an alienist, which takes him out of the Sarah picture, right front and center, all in one fell swoop. It was June, and good luck trying to get anybody to convene, knowing full well that he has now three months to four months to examine his, quote, panoply of failures. This man is getting pummeled. It is the 17th round of a boxing match that just will not end. And he just keeps getting up. But it's just like, how many more lumps can this man take? As much as I love the conversation he has later on with Karen about the lactophilia and fetish versus pleasure and, you know, uh, breasts being erogenous zones. Amen, sister. As much as I love that conversation, the one uh, between the two of them right after what happened to Pauly happened is, is my favorite of the two. I still don't trust Karen. She just seems too good to be true. But... Um, it's a great conversation they have where Chrysler obviously and predictably is blaming himself for doing it. He talks about using magic to bridge the gap of Polly's life from when he was happy to, you know, the Polly of now who is not and, you know, bringing wonder in his life. And, but that Polly turned it around and, and in the end Chrysler just, you know, he talks about weaving a fiction that Polly got lost in and which led to this. So Lazlo goes on to, to draw a parallel between the Polly's of the world and how you get Libby hatches. Karen has a great response about how she feels it's the absence of wonder in a child's life that leads to the molding of your Libby hatches in later in life. I don't think it's out of character for Laszlo to, to pull himself into this personally because he is so involved with these kids and he's doing his best to, to change their lives for the better. And he definitely feels that he missed something. And in his apology to Polly in the hospital, he's telling Polly how, I mean, Polly's asleep, but telling him how that he, he should have been there, that he got let the case take over. And he, he, he feels that he missed something in his duties. In the conversation with Karen, I, I like her. I, I feel I feel like I'm trusting her. She's good for Laszlo, that she wants good for Laszlo. So I'm tentative in my trust for her, but it's definitely there, I think more so than what you're feeling for her. And I just appreciate what she's trying to do for Laszlo in this moment where she's trying to snap him out of his spiral because he is 
he is spiraling and he's blaming himself. He's basically laying the blame full square at his own feet and not taking into consideration that Paulie also had free will. You know, she tells him that he's just looking for ways to punish himself. That's not a fair assessment. She tells him that he needs to look ahead. And the music for me in this moment, it just did like a very big crescendo. And like, I went back, I was like, wait, what did, what did she, like, what was happening here? So I feel that there's going to be some move. There's going to be some, something that Laszlo does that's big. And I feel like Karen's going to guide him to it. It was just the, the way that the music played out for me there. I was like, there's something, there's something big happening. He's still at rock bottom. He's not allowing himself to climb out of it. Are you surprised that Laszlo told Sarah about Karen? One, you get the impression that's a big moment for Laszlo that he, and you can see he's wrestling whether or not to actually tell her, but he does. And and says, and he tries to be coy about it, says, you know, she's giving me great counsel. And Sarah picks up what he's putting down and, and has a great line. She's a kindred spirit, which, you know, she really does seem to be. And Laszlo has a great reaction where he kind of, he goes to rebuff that, but then he kind of like smiles and shrugs and says, yeah, she might be. And it's just a great moment these two friends, as much as I like them together, this was a great moment of friendship between the two of them. But I think I was maybe a little surprised that he actually said something. I mean, I still have a very closed off to his emotions Laszlo in my head, but maybe this new season Laszlo that we keep talking about, where there's a movement towards empathy and, and human emotion, you know, maybe it's not surprising. What, what was your take on that? I wasn't surprised that he told Sarah. I would have been more surprised if he'd said something in front of John. I think the growing respect that he has for Sarah in terms of her alienist abilities, her forensic abilities, has strengthened their friendship in a way that would make her the confidant, even though he's known her for less time. I did find it funny that he needed to basically a swig of bourbon to continue talking about Karen after mentioning that she's a formidable woman. For a guy who doesn't like the loss of power and control by getting drunk, we've seen him drink a lot this season. He's drinking absinthe, you know, nonstop with Karen. He's drinking lots of bourbon with Sarah. Can't imagine the lingonberry hangover, the lingonberry schnapps hangover that he would have had. And two champagnes. Three. Three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, Laszlo's bending the arm this season. I, you know, so maybe not out of character for him. I, I did appreciate how genuinely happy Sarah looked for him, so... I think that was the validation that he was also looking for, that he can find happiness, that he's allowed to feel happy. Because I I think he's just berating himself so much this season that he does need. He's basically in his own cry for help. I think this was a good validation that he's worthy of such love and affection. He definitely senses something between Sarah and John. Oh, hells yeah. Yeah, I mean, he gives gives a look and he kind of tilts his head like a, huh gonna file that one way for a conversation uh later over on. some more lingonberry schnapps <laughs> but but sarah though on the friendship side one does seem very genuinely happy for him which whether she really feels it or not i mean she's going through her own personal turmoil right now because of john you know she knows that he needs that he's looking for that kind of response and i'm happy that she gives it to him because it does seem to let him have a bit of a, a breath and a sigh of relief but she also goes to bat for him big time in getting him reinstated and getting the suspension temporarily lifted so he can work as an alienist and kind of keeping his hopes afloat. I mean, he's even with that, he's basically resigned to the fact that someone like Polly is going to be taken away from him and sent to a foster home. Even if he is allowed to retain the Chrysler Institute, he's going to lose kids. He's going to lose kids like Polly. And Sarah, you know, says, you know, help me find Vanderbilt's baby. Help me find Libby Hatch. And 
Cornelius Vanderbilt will keep his words. This will work out. It's a real, it's a real, like, you know, buck up soldier kind of moment. But Laszlo kind of needed that, though. He, even with all of this good that happened, the guilt over Polly and the consequences it may have for not only Polly, but for all of the kids at the Chrysler Institute are hanging, are hanging heavy on him. And Sarah really steps in and, and kind of puts some of that weight on her shoulders. The good friends give that kind of support without being asked. Exactly. Yeah. Chrysler didn't ask Sarah to make it a condition of being hired to find a Vanderbilt grandchild to do that. She didn't. That was that was her make or break. Yeah, and I absolutely believe that she would have, as painful as it would have been to her to walk away from helping find a child, I think, I think she would have stuck by that. And that's what good friends do. So let's get to this fetish conversation. Laszlo is so confused when Sarah tells him about the, the breastfeeding that uh, the adult breastfeeding that she saw in the alleyway, he seems so confused about it that he goes to his resident female mind. He goes to Karen and shares more information about this case. He presents it in a way where obviously it is the only possible explanation. And he presents it as if there is no other side to it, that this is a fetish she is engaging in to to please presumably Gugu Knox. And he has that great line about breast being the deliverer of death. You know, (laughs) (laughs) buddy, you're, you're bitten with the wrong breast. I, that's my feeling. I I was saying, Um, I was like, these, these are not harbingers of death here. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so, um, (laughs) sorry. Now we're all looking down at my chest. (laughs) I I mean, I'm not, but (laughs) the point is taken. I think, I think everyone is looking at their own chest. I'm looking at my own breast and seeing if they're harbingers of death, but she seems to be genuinely amused Yes, I did get amused. But also put, puts him in his place without hesitation. She blows his mind by making the statement that it may not be a fetish at all. This may be actual sexual enjoyment and pleasure for her. And, and you know, expand your worldview and you may understand her a little bit better. I think that's the point that Karen's making here. You know, you, you, you are going in with a very set frame of mind about what this means this aspect of the case means expand your mind a little bit about the fact that that libby may be enjoying this consensually this may be a gratifying sexual act between the two of them for the two of them you know that may really expand your profile about who this woman is because that's the that's where we're up to in the case john says it you know who is libby hatch where is libby hatch you know, part of the who is she is maybe someone who is into lactophilia. I, there's a lot here. I mean, she shows her ankles. She has a great point about the fact that I've shown you my ankles. Does that make you forget, you know, who I am? The rest of me, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a feminist argument she's making here. There is a sexual revolution argument. I mean, she's about she's about 80 years too early for the sexual revolution argument she's making here. Uh, just really interesting stuff that she's throwing down that a female psychologist of the time seems right would be the one to make this. A female Freud, if you will, would be able to make these kinds of arguments. Lasso, his mind just seems to be blown at this whole this whole idea that this may be a thing. She's challenging him, too, to step outside of the textbook definition, you know, talking about a fetish, you know, defining is defined as a man reducing a woman for sexual pleasure as a sexual object. He's also implying there that women don't have fetishes, which that's not true. He's 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 doing a classic guy thing here where he is taking the woman's side but in doing so presents her as nothing more than a victim of an event instead of being a willing instead of considering that she may be a willing participant. This was probably her idea. 
There's no way that Gugu has the upper hand and the power dynamic of the relationship between the two of them. We talked about it. She slaps him for insulting a baby and gets away with it. Whereas Gugu, as you said, has probably slashed a thousand throats. There is a power dynamic here that Karen is trying to get him to understand that it's not just about what the textbook says now, because also their science is very new at this point. And I just love the point where she, her voice got loud when she said a woman might enjoy being a part of that ritual, that this is not an act of a victim, that this is somebody who's probably willingly going into this. And his face is just like, I've never heard those words said in that order. I, I like the dynamic between these two. I feel that she's expanding his role and his knowledge as an alienist. She has definitely a more academic sense about her being a professor. She's someone that he idolizes. So there's definitely that kindred soul that someone is my equal knowledge here, but she's also offering a very different perspective. His only answer is that he's not a sufferer of the pathology. So I think that was his his offer that he hears her and uh but even to that though she retorts to him that it's not a pathology you know he he is being very clinical about this though chrysler is presenting a world view here where sex is just missionary position and that is it that a female does not enjoy sex which is not out of place for people for men of the 1890s it's not terribly out of place for men of the 2000s i like to think of chrysler as being a little more woke even if he doesn't believe something at least acknowledging that it may be a possibility so i'm glad that karen you know held her line on this didn't capitulate to his kind of one-sided man's view of how a woman enjoys sex but instead kind of took him to task i appreciated that that she did that because it was something chrysler needed to hear because as expansive a mind as he has he was extremely and maybe it's from inexperience though too as smart as leslo is he does not seem to be terribly well versed in sex yes he's more book smart than street smart and clinically book smart in sex i mean he understands that the textbooks textbook definition of all these things but in practice it's quite different and even when he says you know i don't i don't share this pathology and, and she she again has to remind him it's not a pathology this is two things that these people like to do they're not mutually exclusive concepts right right they're not being deviant here this is not coercive deviant sex that they're engaging in this is erotic play that they're both enjoying is is karen's point here and i i just don't think if you could get you could have given laszlo 10 chances and i just don't know that he would have come up with that as an option in 10 guesses no i don't think that either Hell, you know, maybe it uh, bodes well for him and Karen's sex life. She's already shown the ankles. I I mean, yeah, the, the scandalousness of the ankles has been shown. Ne- next uh, up is the bosom. <laughs> I, I, yeah, there, there's, well, there's plenty of stuff between the ankles and the bosom, but. That's where her mind is going. Well, because they're talking about breasts and the breastfeeding and stuff. So so clearly it's it's the area of topic. I think she's going to be a very good tutor in a lot of practical tutorial kind of ways for Laszlo if this progresses. We start the episode with some more naked Luke Evans ass, so I knew you were happy about that. Woohoo! Sarah, super awkward in the morning. John, awkward too, but the two of them together were awkward. Is Sarah having morning after regret here, or is she really just thinking about the case and still running the Lenaris baby situation that her mind is unsettled on? And even, you know, finally getting to have sex with John is kind of taking a back seat the morning after. I was having a hard time reading her. She was definitely very contemplated, but she was flashing back to their their time the night before. I feel like she's got buyer's remorse in some way, shape or form. When she said, you know, you're engaged to be married, John, when he's talking about being worthy of her. Yeah, it's kind of late to be saying that he's engaged to be married. Like you pursued him last night. 
I'm not sure what her dynamic was the, the following morning, but he was super awkward too. And he was basically saying, I'm willing to call off the marriage of the century in order to, to be with you if you think I'm worthy of you. So he was definitely putting himself out there in a very uncomfortable kind of a way, only to be rebuffed by her again. And later on, he goes to try to pull the trigger on that conversation anyway with Violet. I mean, she just doesn't cut him off. She, like, fucking T-bones him in the middle of an intersection with her statement about, you know, through him finally belonging. John is very swept up in the romance of the moment when he's in front of Sarah. But push comes to shove in front of Violet. He didn't seem maybe as forceful or as go-getter as he was maybe feeling when he first woke up this morning and and put his clothes on. Do you think that article from Hearst actually got to Sarah under her skin in a real way? Until her conversation about Libby, I was having a lot of trouble reading where her mind was in this whole episode. I don't think it was phasing her at all, really. It was something that should have at least registered, but she was focused on the case. She couldn't understand why Bitsy needed her to come to the office that the article would be generating business for her. It did backfire on Hearst because it didn't have the the intent that it was meant for. The way It didn't really come up again. And then it became this vehicle for her to be the most recognized detective in the city by the most powerful man in the city, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Good on Vanderbilt. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's a, Nice hat tip to how powerful he is that he can bold-faced ask William Randolph Hearst and, you know, ex-commissioner Burns their impression of Sarah Howard, get negative views from on her from both of them and still be like, yeah, well, I'm going to find out because she's on her way here. I've already dispatched her. <laughs> he totally takes their temperature and then it's just kind of like, yeah, I'm still going to decide for myself. You, you didn't really give me the answer I was looking for here. So fuck you, Joe Boo. I'm going to go do it myself. That's kind of his opinion. <laughs> really like that about him, though, which I, you know, I think any lesser man probably quakes and probably caves in front of, you know, a William Randolph Hearst and a Burns. They are forceful men. They are men who are not used to being told no or not getting their way. He rebuffs them without even blinking an eye, without even, without even so much as a, you know, sorry, thanks for your input, but he's just like, yeah, I'm going to see for myself. Uh, I really like that about Cornelius. He got a lot of style points for me. And then that he hears her out and lets her make her case. And this is such a world still where women are not allowed to advocate on their behalf, to make a case for why they are qualified to do the thing for which there is a job to be done. And a job that can be done by a lot of other men. And are being done by other men. He tells he tells Burns and William Randolph first because he doesn't want to bring in the New York police for it. He's hired all of the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons, I think he's using it generally as we would use, you know, PIs or private dicks. You know, the Pinkertons were a detective agency, I think based out of Chicago, not based out. I don't think they were based out of New York, but they were a national detective agency. And security. And But, you know, they were they were the kind of private side security you would bring in to find a lost person or to find someone who, uh, you know, owed you a debt, you know, if you needed a bounty, you know, they were the kind of people that you would call and do that. They were like private detectives. He says he's hired every one of them to scour the streets looking for his grandson. Sarah is just one more of these people that he's willing to vet. The fact that she is front page news for finding that there Spanish baby makes her worthy of interview. So it really did back a fire on Hearst. If not her face being on the front page of the journal with the headline that the lady detective found the baby, Vanderbilt probably doesn't 
bother to interview her. I did think it was interesting, though, her choice of words when she is talking to Mr. Vanderbilt about uh, wrapping up the Lenaris case, saying, I let Libby Hatch escape. The wording made my ears perk up, too, because it's a, it's a very specific way of saying something that's not really true in a factual way. What, yeah. what was your take on it? What, what do you think the psychology is there behind her saying that that way? I feel like this is guilt catching up to her. I feel like she's finally dealing with the guilt because when she's talking to Bitsy, when Bitsy arrives with the newspaper, she's saying that she has to continue the Lenaris case because if another baby is taken, that she couldn't live with the guilt. And as she says that, she is staring at Bitsy. And the look on her face is the only time I'm registering a lot of emotion on her face until much later. So I think that she's feeling guilt. I think she's feeling culpable in some way. It was an interesting choice of phrase in the in the dynamic of where she was saying it as well. Right. It almost sounds like a confession of... I had her. That I had her and let her go, which is a dangerous phrasing to say in front of, uh, you know, a Hearst and a Burns. And, and all. I mean, everyone in that room was an enemy, uh, except for Vanderbilt, who just didn't know her. But I, I think you're right. I think it is guilt talking that she phrases that way. I, I think there's I think there's an aspect of it, you know, where I got so close to her that I just couldn't do it. But as a way of saying the next time I will get her. Yes, that I'm not going to give up. I think Sarah maybe does the calculus, the fact that she's even in this room. You know, I'm sure she sees the newspaper lying out there. She knows Vanderbilt has read this article or assumes probably that this, you know, he's read this article about her and has whatever preconceived notions about her. Why not be straight in so far as I was there next to her? Literally, I mean, gun turned on me, but also I'm the one who got that close to her too. When you say I let her go, however you take that, that also means that you were so close that one, you were able to find this missing baby that no one else was able to find. And you were close enough to the person who did it that you know who she is. Like you were, it, it wasn't a mystery to you who took this baby. You had her, you were in the same room with her. So by way of saying she let her go, she actually kind of increases her bona fides that she got so close to it already. You know? And it's also, it's it's so personal that she's like, the fact that she's addressing her by her first name and last name, it's, it's very personal to address somebody that way. Yeah, It's basically saying that I, I can't let this go. Like she got away from me once, it's not happening again and I'm still working it. There's a Netflix documentary uh, docuseries right now called The Last Dance. It chronicles the career of Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago and the Chicago Bulls. And it's a great docuseries, whether you're a basketball fan, whether you're a Michael Jordan and a Chicago Bulls fan, it's actually a great docuseries. Everyone should watch it. Uh, Michael Jordan has this habit and it, and it becomes a running joke. I'm sure there are memes about it already throughout the series. They would talk about him coming up against playing someone, right? And that person would, would catch him on a bad night and talk shit about him or talk shit to him or on the golf course, Another day, you know, be like, yeah, we really whooped your ass the other day. And then it would cut to Michael Jordan in the present, who was being interviewed throughout the docuseries. And he would look at the camera and say, it got really personal for me. And he says it <laughs> like a thousand times. And inevitably, it would then cut to the next time he met that person, the next time he played that team, whoever disrespected him in his mind, and it had become personal, just fucking annihilates them. Like, goes out and, you know, uh, maybe this person scored like 20 points off of him one game. He goes out the next time they play and scored like 60. Just embarrassed them, just destroyed them. And the fuel of it, it got personal for me, is like this cry, this rallying cry that springs him to action. And I feel like that's kind of where Sarah is in this also. She has taken Libby Hatch very personally. As Lazo is putting Pauly at his own feet, 
uh, Sarah is very much putting Libby Hatch and the fact that Libby Hatch is still out there. The fact that Libby Hatch was not caught so much earlier. She's putting all of that at her own feet. That's a really great way to put it. I like that. It got personal for me. If nothing else, watch The Last Dance just to see Michael Jordan look at the camera and be like, and then it got personal for me. And then see how he re- he responded. And it's, it's fucking fantastic. It never gets old. And it happens like like a thousand times. Okay, let's get to the big scene here with Sarah is in the office. Her and John and Laszlo have gathered to talk about who is Libby Hatch. And hopefully by figuring that out, figuring out where she is, because they really don't know. They have this great conversation about uh, Laszlo speaks a little cryptically and needs John to kind of translate for him. But essentially they're saying that every good lie has a tinge of truth to it. Good liars are able to suck you into their story and, and make you believe what they're saying because there's a little bit of truth in what they're saying. That means that something in her that drew you to her was probably true. And so Sarah reflects, and we're getting great flashbacks. A lot of weird flashback effects with Sarah and reenactment stuff in her mind we're getting this season. But this episode, we're getting a flashback to that lunch at the French restaurant and talking about the fathers in there and, you know, how seeing her father's picture in the lockets um, or in the in the time piece. The pocket watch, yeah. Uh, the pocket watch uh, sprang, you know, uh, uh, you know, Sarah shared the story of her father, which made Libby share the story of her father, you know, hanging from a bridge. And, and that's enough then for them to go track down and figure out who she really is. But what did you think of her assessment? Because I feel like this is something that we talked about the first episode we met Libby. What did you think of her assessment about what drew her to Libby to begin with? Did that Did that seem true to you based on having watched those scenes play out initially they're bound by this shared trauma and they had this level of of instant trust because they both come from the same kind of wounded place i think it's fair to say that you know our assessment and her assessment was right that we said that there was something a little odd about her right that you know we thought it was endearing that she was so shy and you know the the issue with the oysters and she was too nervous to read the menu that she was vulnerable and tentative, but, you know, what Sarah said, but she was intelligent. You know, you have to be pretty smart to be a nurse. I mean, even if you are a graduated ward girl, you still have to have some wits about you. So I feel that Sarah was um, was pretty on the mark. And and she was, she was plain as day saying, if it were different circumstances, we'd be friends. I like everything about Sarah in this scene. I love the, I love her own vulnerability. I mean, speaking of vulnerability, I love her own vulnerability here in how plainly she's speaking, but she can, right? Because she just... She has a trust for for John and for Laszlo, who are not going to use this kind of thing against her. Th- this thing that she sees as a lapse. Yeah, she sees this as a failing. Yeah, this is yeah. She, this whole Libby affair is a failure in her eyes. But she understands that with Laszlo and John, she can she can speak plainly and truly to try and figure out from it whatever they maybe they can use to try and figure out who she is. She she has a, a trust and a faith in them and in their friendship and having each other's backs. That, that she can speak plainly like this. And I, I love I love how she describes uh, Libby here because I think this is a lot of why people like Sarah. There's a vulnerability there. You know, she has a real hard exterior, but there's clearly a soft, softy heart underneath her. And obviously there's an intelligence. There's a fierce intelligence there. It's interesting that she says she wanted me to know her. She wanted me to to become her friend. She wanted me to like her, but yet also deceived me. And she says it like she's kind of surprised, but I feel like a lot of people 
do this though when when they want someone to like them get like a a mixed version of them no one ever presents who they are exactly maybe they're not hiding the fact that they're stealing babies and killing them but people always try if 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 you see someone in someone if you see something in someone i think a lot of people try and put forward a, a face or uh make trying to make an initial impression on someone that maybe isn't exactly who they are and that you only learn the truth of who they are through time and through shared experiences and, and kind of breaking down all of that information. I think that's kind of what Libby's doing here. I mean, we've talked about how Libby really took to Sarah and maybe looks at her like a mentor, maybe is emulating her, the whole idea of the single white female. I think Sarah is dead on here, but I'm surprised that she's, that she needs this explained to her, the idea that she wanted her to, she wanted me to like her, but also was able to deceive me. Is that your experience that people have a lot of different faces depending on their situations? Like their work face is different than their private life face. The face that someone sees if they're a a relative is different than the face that maybe friends or acquaintances see. Oh, yeah, sure. Definitely. You're not going to be the same person with your with your mom that you are with your your pals out for a night a night out. You're just, you're not going to get that. So I think she's confessing some of her own vulnerabilities to these two that she does implicitly trust so much. And I feel that this is where she's a step above Chrysler in his dealing with the blows that he's taking. She's stopping the spiral by confiding this in the two people that she does trust the most so that this way they can set her straight again. I I feel like this is, this is a conscious effort on her part because she's not normally this touchy-feely with her feelings. She's not somebody who expresses that vulnerability that often. So I feel that this is a little bit more of her evolution. Not for nothing. I mean, Sarah is very much a person who also presents different faces. I mean, well, traditionally, Sarah has been someone who has her high society face, but she is also someone who will go down into the tenderloin. She's someone who will go down on Hudson Street. She's willing to get herself dirty. There's the other side of her that always has a fucking gun on her that she's willing to pull out like a moment's notice and, and pull on someone, you know, in Gansevoort Market in broad daylight because they're threatening her friend. You know, there's a lot of faces of Sarah, too. She is not so unlike Libby without the negative baby stealing, killing, matron killing parts of her. Lactophilia. Yeah. Yeah, well, but we don't know that she's not into lactophilia. I mean, she's never, you know, had milk come in, presumably. So, I mean, who knows what her and John are going to get up to when she, you know, gets pregnant. Well, look at you being so judgmental. I'm just scarred from my... I think, well, I think there's a kinship here, which Sarah could go even further with. I think there's something about Libby that drew her to Libby, because I think there's a lot of herself she sees in Libby. You know, this idea of having to have different faces. You know, she walks in... On that conversation where she knows that Burns and Hearst are talking to, about her to Vanderbilt and uh, they're talking about going down to the Hudson area and stuff. And she walks in and she's like, I just came from that area. That slip of a girl. Yeah. She's shedding the walls between those faces in the scene, kind of the same way that Libby is shedding, you know, we talked about last week where Chrysler says, you know, the, or two episodes ago where she said, where he says that, uh, 
you know, all of the different walls of her persona are kind of dissolving and crumbling and they're all kind of merging into one. Yeah. And maybe that's causing, you know, this change of behavior. Well, that's kind of what Sarah, Sarah's not putting on airs anymore. She's not, she's not playing, you know, a, a, a debutante at the ball over here and a, and a woman who is getting down and dirty in the nasty parts of New York over there. They're kind of all meshing together as she does this detective agency work. So yeah, I think there's a lot of similarity between her and Libby. I think I think that's really what she's picking up on when she thinks about the fact that they could have been friends under different circumstances. So we we already talked about how Sarah was kind of all business talking about where where is Libby keeping the babies in the morning after glow. John, once he puts some clothes on his naked butt, he's all full of love and you know, I'll I'll leave it all behind, you know, to be with you and she is kind of, you know, well, kind of wishy-washy, but he still goes forward and has that conversation with Violet, who we had seen earlier. I mean, Violet, Violet has a whole thing this episode about, you know, talking about uh, the whispers she hears, you know, behind her back. And she's she's complaining about Sarah and Sarah and John. She's complaining about John, you know, always running off to do work. Violet's having, you know, some blues and some jealousy issues. and Massive insecurity. Validation issues, you know, being the illegitimate daughter of such a powerful man, it's put her in a weird position in society. It's actually, it's actually a really interesting quote. You know, in belonging to you, I will finally belong. Her expressing her love out loud is no feat for her when you think about how she's been raised, right? How she had to not be acknowledged by her real father for her entire life. So love has never been a thing that's been easy to receive or to openly express for her, right? That's what she's mm-hmm. saying in the scene. And then she's tired of being a misfit in society. She's tired about all the whispers behind her back. Did this whole scene with Violet make her a lot more sympathetic to you or not at all? You still felt like she was kind of like a, a vapid dilettante. Nope. Still hate her. I I don't. It felt that she was whining to William Randolph Hearst in the earlier part of the episode when she was talking about just how John consorts with with sarah and is is off anytime that she needs him and the looks that they share but meanwhile they've spent no time with sarah so they don't like william randolph Hearst only met sarah when they were with the vanderbilts there's been no real interplay between them only what violet has witnessed at the engagement party the shade that she's throwing on her father am i to suffer as your wife suffers knowing full well that men of a certain stature in society have mistresses that it's an accepted norm apparently for this this time frame and for this this echelon of society she's already resigned to the fact that that's going to happen but she just doesn't want it to happen so early in their marriage this was her way of trapping john by saying that i i think she she knew something was big was coming just based on how he was talking and she just shut the conversation down so i feel that she is using and abusing this situation to her full advantage she is threatened by Sarah, and she's going to do everything that she can to throw John off of her trail. I, I think that's a fair take on her, especially when you think about how much she whines to William Randolph Hearst. Do you think John, though, really would have called it off for with her had she not stopped him with this monologue that would have been impossible for him to respond to in, in any kind of way? Going, yeah, I just she- fucked her, so can we call this off? Yeah. That, that smell happening. that smell my fingers that's her um <laughs> the um yeah it, let's say she does say violent doesn't cut him off does he actually have the stones to go forward with it i don't know i feel like it would have been like let's hit pause maybe do we need to get married so quickly because i think they're getting married at like the end of the summer um i think there might have been 
I, he was not going to go, by the way, we're calling this off because I just fucked her. There was no way that he was going to have that forceful of a conversation with her because he's, anytime he tries to be serious with Violet, she, she spurns him in very embarrassing ways, very childish ways. I think this was going to have to be a multifaceted conversation. Like he was going to have to do this two or three times in order to actually have broken it off with her. So I don't think that would have been like, yeah, this isn't happening. It's because he's just not that kind of a guy either like he's very he's very much of a society Spine, being not spineless i know where you're going spineless i know you can't stand him i it's not that i can't stand him that, 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 that's not fair i can't, it's not that i can't stand him it's that i think he's a lot more like violet than he is like sarah or laszlo but i think he's trying to be more sarah very possibly and probably is a function of the high society life that he has lived but he as I mean, he has plenty of moments when you look back over the two seasons of The Alienist as being as whiny as Violet is. I, I don't, I agree with you. I don't think he calls it off cold turkey. Maybe we get a stalling. I think much more likely th- for him to get to the point of, I think we need to go slower, is probably two or three of these kinds of conversations that he's ramping up to have, which, by the way, he never actually ends up having with her. Nope. So, uh, you know, she almost did him a favor by steamrolling him because it saved him the awkward embarrassment of trying to say whatever it is he was going to end up saying. Uh, let's talk about Burns, because Burns is another, you know, side character here. You know, maybe maybe not as uh, fun to talk about as Gugu Knox, but certainly an important character, uh, you know, B, B character who definitely has uh, been positioned to have an enormous impact on the story. So we already talked about Sarah's first condition to taking the Vanderbilt case is that Laszlo gets reinstated so she can work so he can work on the case with her. The second condition is making it clear that Burns works for her. Uh, will hop to when she says get to hop in. He accepts it here in the present. He doesn't openly rebel because Vanderbilt is there. But later on to Hearst, he is full of piss and vinegar about how he's not going to take you know, the orders of any kind of woman. What What did you think of Hearst's uh, reply here that he should basically do the role that's been assigned to him as a way of... Gaining favor with Vanderbilt. But also, I mean, he, he talks about how Vanderbilt is a patron of Hearst and of Burns, so they need to keep him pleased. But I think Hearst, I feel like Hearst is making a larger point here. I feel like there's a, a, a an unspoken plan to sometime, somehow sabotage Sarah. A hundred percent. But yet still be successful in getting the baby back. So uh, I think the general evil plan here is for Burns to come out of this situation looking like the hero. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That it was, we need to, you know, basically keep our position with Vanderbilt. He's the top of the heap. Looking at this as the opportunity to embarrass Sarah and basically put her out of business, out of commission for good. That Burns is going to use his 30 years of experience, not be devalued by her, but he's going to use that experience to come out on top somehow and make Sarah look bad. They save the baby, and that's why Vanderbilt is like, well, maybe I should have listened to you guys in the first place. It's a, it's an interesting line because Burns is also, I feel like, a little bit of a loose cannon at the moment. He's been disrespected so many times this season, and it happened twice in the same conversation with Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt puts up his hand when he's talking about Sarah. Then after Sarah leaves, Vanderbilt is he takes a jab at uh, Burns and the police department by not finding the secret room that Sarah found. So like his 30 years of police detective work didn't find the secret room that she did. He's also been knocked down two pegs by Vanderbilt in the span of five minutes. 
at all relating to Sarah's now this woman that he has to work for. So I feel that he, even though he has five daughters, he's going to be a very rough character for Sarah to, to kind of manage and handle. He can't be trusted. I, the only good thing is that I think having him around allows the Isaacsons to come out into the open a little bit more with how closely they work with t- uh, Team Alienist. It's still weird for me. I used to I used to always call it Team Chrysler in yeah. season one, but uh, given the power dynamics and and Sarah being kind of uh, you know head cheese here, I feel like. I feel like Team Alienist or Team Howard is probably a better appellation. But I think Burns being formally on the case under her purview allows the Isaacsons to to be a little more open with the help that they give. Because there's already been a couple times a season where, you know, Marcus and or Lucius has had to tell Sarah, no, I can't let you in. It happens in this episode when mm-hmm. they go to look at 249 Hudson Street right next door to the closed boarding house. And Marcus is kind of like, you know, I can't let you in here. And we, we saw that at Siegel Cooper where he was kind of in an awkward position to let them look at the, the dolls and, you know, letting uh, Chrysler look at the autopsy. This will, I think, allow them to help out more... Uh, openly, which I am always in favor of more Isaacsons on the scene. I think they are two great additions that don't get used enough on the team. So When Sarah came back to report to Vanderbilt about what they learned about Libby Hatch through their analysis, that it was really, really smart on her part to show up with the full team. This is showing these are the people at my disposal. These are the people that are all working. This is all hands on deck. And these are the smartest people in the room right now. So I thought that was a really good in particular, having Chrysler there, too, who she has now personally gone to bat for, even with this investigation hanging over him. I think you're right. I think seeing him as one of one of the big brains of the trust also, it puts him in a higher standing too. So I think that's a good call on your part. Yeah, it raises all of their credibility, I feel, just by them showing up together. And just the fact that they deduce that she is fleeing to Brooklyn and Burns, he's so smug when he says that all of Manhattan is already locked down. And they're like, yeah, bitch, they're gone to Brooklyn. Yeah, they're like, already there. You're like, you've locked the barn door after, after the horses are out. It's yeah. already out, you know, so great job there, Inspector, Inspector Turdface. Um, and cause, and of course that they are, I mean, in intercut with these scenes is where she's smacking Google as they're packing. And then, you know, obviously in the last scene, they've made it cause they're on top of the brownstone, uh, looking at the bridge. So for me, that's pretty much the episode. There was only one odd and end that we didn't talk about that I wanted to bring up just because I feel like we kind of predicted this may happen and, and who knows what may come for of it is, uh, when the dusters come a knock in at uh, Cyrus's place and really rough up Joanna for whatever involvement she may have in interfering with Gugu and Libby's baby plans. We talked about how Sarah recklessly was putting people in danger. We we mentioned that by bringing Joanna along may have been, even though jo- Joanna insisted, Sarah is the, is the power in that dynamic. And she could have not brought Joanna along, but she did. And now has she endangered joanna's life and god forbid something happens to her what what that means for cyrus what that means for cyrus and the team i didn't like this development at all and the fact that they put it in this episode makes me fearful for something in the last two hours happening it just shows that the dusters are a little bit more unhinged because google's probably putting some pressure on them because the pressure's on him and libby the the fact that joanna gets in, intimidated and roughed up the way that she did is is 100 payback for bringing sarah around and you know, messing up Gugu's thing with Libby. There was something that Ding Dong said. He was like messing around with Gugu's girl and taking what ain't yours. But I mean, like the baby ain't theirs either. You know, there's that little weird thing. It's like, well, who actually owns this situation, I guess is really what I'm trying to say. 
it was fortuitous that Cyrus showed up with his top hat and baton the way that he did with his booming voice of get the hell out of here. But it just, I think it was intentional in this episode to say that the don't rule out the dusters. Cause we were even saying like, where'd they all go? Like there was such this, this big play to show them with the Gansafort fort market and the, the dead bodies. This was their reintroduction to the story. So that's kind of where I'm thinking that it's going with them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm more practically concerned about the safety of Joanna and Cyrus. Less so about Cyrus. Well, that's not true. I would have said last season, less so about Cyrus. But they've been such on the fringe, and Joanna is a brand new character. Concern- I've been concerned about their safety since the team showed up there. Yeah. Uh, the first episode, and it turned out to also be a place of the Dusters. It, it's this this common ground for the two very different sides of the equation all meeting in this. I mean, they had the the second part of the engagement party in this place. There were probably dusters there at some point before the bar closed, you know? This is a really dangerous place for Cyrus and Joanna to be, even though it is Cyrus's place, just because of where it's located. It's in this duster territory. So I think jo- Joanna got roughed up more than I would have ex- would have expected in her own bar or in Cyrus's bar, which acts as a bad portent for me for what may befall her before the end of the season. So yeah, the fact that they included this here, I think definitely reminded us that the dusters are around, but you know, there's a target on Joanna's back, you know, one that we kind of predicted, you know, collateral damage of Sarah going around and enlisting different people to help. Um, you know, I, I am worried that will come to fruition in some bad, bad way. So, oh man, what an episode. I can't believe there's only two episodes left of this season. Can you even believe it? It's, it's gone fast. Definitely. What do you have? Uh, so that's it for the episode. But now we have our history corner, and uh, I have I have kind of a tangentially related thing to tonight's episode. But once you start us off with your first history corner item, okay. So I actually have two. Um, one is very short. It's um, revolving around Harry Houdini. He was mentioned in the episode. So while the trick that was demonstrated here in this episode wasn't actually debuted until 1915 in 1898. Harry Houdini was a known magician and illusionist, uh, somewhat in the United States, more so overseas at that point. The flyer shows that he's the handcuff king. He's not actually the handcuff king until in the early 1900s. So he is someone who has broken out of prisons. He's gotten out of straitjackets. He's been underwater. He's presented in this episode as somebody who achieved fame, but he achieved the fame later than this, later than this episode actually showed. So mine is in this episode, Sarah and John are looking, they're looking through the times, trying to figure out what the, the, the family crest belongs to that they found in Libby's secret lair. John finds a wedding announcement announcing the wedding of Gertrude Vanderbilt and Harry Payne Whitney, uh, which was taking place on August 25th, 1896 in Newport, Rhode Island. That's what we're able to see in the announcement that Cornelius Vanderbilt II and his uh, wife, Alice Claypool Gwynn. Typical, you know, kind of save the date wedding announcement, basically. You know, that wedding is a real wedding. That is a real wedding that took place. Um, It did happen on August 25th, 1896. It happened in Newport, Rhode Island at one of the Vanderbilt's several mansions. It was called The Breakers. So The Breakers is an opulent opulent mansion. I, I sent... Use some pictures, uh, Sheila, right before we start recording of a couple of the pictures of what the, the Breakers looks like. It is lots of gold. In fact, Gertrude and 
Harry were married in the drawing room of the Breakers, and it was actually referred to as the Gold Room. That's how much, because the walls were basically like in like gold leaf, like from floor to ceiling. Like, super, super opulent. Uh, This is actually pulled from the Tuesday... It was also a wedding on a Tuesday. How strange is that? But from the New York Journal article covering the wedding from that day, this is a paragraph from that wedding. It says, Early this morning, a large staff of New York florists took possession of the breakers, and all day they worked, adding nature's costliest handiwork to that of the most famous artists and decorators of both continents. The Gold Room, as the drawing room is called, is where the ceremony will be performed. Its gorgeous ivory carvings touched with gold will be hidden tomorrow under thousands of lilies of the valley, and rarest orchids garlanded and turned with delicate green ferns and feathery asparagus. Uh, August 25th, 1896. There's also an expose on what the bride would be wearing, which apparently no one had seen, including her bridesmaids. She had been jealously guarding the secret of her wedding dress until right before the wedding uh, because she didn't want anyone to see it. Uh, there's an ex- there's like a little bio expose on her several bridesmaids. I think she had six different bridesmaids and what they would be wearing. Yeah, it's this whole big piece about uh, Gertrude and uh, Harry's wedding. An interesting thing here, and and this is where the show uh, diverges a little bit from reality. So in 1896, Cornelius Vanderbilt II, who's the Cornelius we see in this episode, the one who hires Sarah, he actually had a stroke uh, in 1886. So he was unable to walk at the time of this wedding between Gertrude and Harry. He was actually rolled down the aisle in a wicker chair before the wedding began. So he would be up at the front and in order to uh, give away the bride. It was believed, actually, his brother William would walk Gertrude down the aisle, but at the last moment, he decided that he wanted to be the one to do it. So they wheeled him, unable to walk, they wheeled him down in his wicker chair, and so he was able to still say he gave away his daughter at the wedding. Two more little facts that come out of this wedding that are pretty interesting. One, Gertrude Vanderbilt, who becomes Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, is actually the Whitney who the art museum the Whitney Museum of American Art, which is a very famous museum in the United States. It was founded in 1931. It was actually founded by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. She was a massive collector of American art paintings. She tried to actually give the paintings to the Met. She offered to build an entire wing to exhibit the paintings. She offered them their entire collection, and the Met said no, because they did not display art from American painters. They had a ban. They would not accept American art from American painters. So Gertrude decides to open up her own art gallery. She has several different galleries that eventually get consolidated down into what becomes known as the Whitney, which is still a major uh, museum today. The last little bit of interesting knowledge here, this was just a little bit when I was reading the very, very tiny print of the New York Journal's article about the wedding. It was mentioned that uh, Bishop Potter, who was the head of the Archdiocese of New York at the time, uh, would be the one who pronounced the benedictions at the wedding up in Rhode Island. Bishop Potter, you relate, was a character, was a minor recurring character in season one of The Alienist. He was keeping Chrysler from finding out the dark secrets of the church, working together with Morgan and Burns to keep Chrysler out of the church's business in season one. So Bishop Potter, who was the one who did the benedictions at this Vanderbilt wedding, was in the Elliotist a kind of recurring bad guy in season one. So I thought that was a little fun connection back to the show. Interesting. I have one last entry into History Corner. There's a city ambulance that pulls up to the Institute, the Chrysler Institute for Pauly after his hanging incident. 
So ambulances weren't in use all that much prior to this. They basically were um, invented in 1869. They made their debut at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which is the oldest hospital in the United States. Uh, I believe it was 1765 that it was founded. So in 1869, horse-drawn carriages were used to go out to pick up New York's wounded and on board was a driver, a doctor, some basic medical supplies, including tourniquets, bandages, splints, and blankets, a straitjacket for when you came up against people that you needed to quarantine quickly, and a quart of brandy. The driver would clear the traffic head with a gong. The floor slats in the back were removable and served as the stretcher. This uh, was such an innovation and was put into practice in cities around the world quite quickly. Bellevue Hospital's ambulance was envisioned and put into practice by a staff surgeon, Edward B. Dalton, who had served in the Civil War and created an efficient way to transport wounded soldiers. Like- and a bookstore. <laughs> B. B. Dalton's. Wow, we're old. <laughs> and um, so the first year of ambulance calls totaled 1,401. Two decades later, which would be around the time of the show, there was about 4,400 calls per year. And if you are so inclined, you can go to the ambulatory pavilion at Bellevue Hospital and you can see one of these ambulances on display today. And if you're so inclined, you can go to the Library of Congress's uh, online archives and pull up the New York Journal article from August 25th to read 1896 to read about the wedding, too. One last thing I wanted to say, just because there's so much of the show that they get right historically. I think it's interesting to note that the baby in question here is a fictional baby. There is no male Vanderbilt child born that was an infant at this time in June of 1896. The nearest baby would actually be a female baby born of Gertrude and Harry Whitney, uh, which would be born at the end of July 1897. That is the closest male baby Vanderbilt baby that that could have fit the bill here. But as we know from the show, it is a male Vanderbilt grandson of Cornelius uh, Vanderbilt II. And his next male heir was Cornelius Van- Vanderbilt IV, which was would not be born until I think it was April 1898. Yes. So there would not be a male Vanderbilt born from Cornelius Vanderbilt II's line until 1898. Though you do have Flora Payne Whitney, who was born in 1897 in July, but again, still doesn't fit. Uh, prior to Flora, the most recent Vanderbilt was born in 1886. So, like, there's an 11-year gap of Vanderbilts being born. Uh, that's Gladys Moore Vanderbilt, who's born in 1886. There's actually a distant relative of Princess Diana, who was born in 1897. It's John Spencer Churchill, 10th Duke of Marlborough, who was born in 1897 at the end of the year. But he was not from Cornelius Vanderbilt II's line. He was from one of his brother's line. He was an uncle to John Spencer Churchill. So lots of Vanderbilts, fascinating family tree, shocking the amount of people who are related to them. Some people I found out, obviously Gloria Vanderbilt, the, the fashion designer, is is a Vanderbilt. But uh, Anderson Cooper of CNN fame, or from if you went to St. Francis Preparatory High School, he was an anchor Channel on, on Channel One News when we were when we were high school students. Sheila, That's we used right. to watch him and Lisa Ling every day. Do and the he was in like on assignment in Bosnia during the war there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he they had used to send, jackets they, on. They, they used to send Anderson. I mean, it was a running joke in high school even when we were kids that Anderson Cooper used to be in war zones all the fucking time. And I think 
this point he was probably in his early twenties doing, yeah. you know, he was supposed to be a teenager. That was the whole thing with, uh, with the, the channel one news was that they were kind of look like teenagers, but they think they were all a bit older than that. But yeah, out of there came Anderson Cooper and came Lisa Ling, who they used to also send over. I remember she did the Olympics in when we were freshmen in Norway. No. Well, that was 92. Oh yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I think Norway? Norway was 94. Had they switched to off years in 90, 92, 94? Yeah. I don't think that started until Yeah, I have a friend who later. lives in Norway. They were very excited. In Lillehammer? Lillehammer. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, we go back with Andrew Cooper in a long way, but he is a Vanderbilt. Princess Diana was a Vanderbilt through a convoluted family line. So, lots of Vanderbilts out there. Uh, Timothy Oliphant, you, you, you. I found uh, that one, yeah. You found this, uh, out when I was, and then I found it later on looking through the family tree. Timothy Oliphant is a Vanderbilt. So, you know, all you justified fans out there, right? That was his show, That's justified? It, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you you know that the reason you like him is because he was a rich, 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 rich Vanderbilt. So there you go. <laughs> anyway, that brings us to the end of another Meet at Almanico's, the Alienist podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. you've you've actually rocketed this podcast up into the top 100 in uh, on Apple Podcasts, you know, TV review list. And thank that's because you guys listen. And, uh, you know, thank you, thank you so so much. So please continue to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars is always greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. Five stars. Give us five stars. Five stars. Thank you so much for listening. We very much appreciate it. And we will talk to you next week. Meet at Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.